Yeah, it is indeed. In the next few minutes or so, uh, we'll check in with uh, Sizwem Bofu Walsh, uh, Dr. Sizwem Bofu Walsh, uh, to uh, speak to him about uh, his uh, uh, new uh, book there, The New Apartheid. Apartheid did not die. It was privatized. And uh, we'll also have a chance in our Culture Talk segment uh, later on uh, to uh, speak to Baba Lwanongenge, a podcast at Epogotweni. Going to speak to her about uh, her offering there, uh, unpacking. Uh, financial conversations in the language of uh, Isikosa and uh, we'll have uh, an opportunity to touch on that and uh, some of the challenges she's confronted in her work uh, uh, which of course uh, certainly has uh, I guess uh, broken some new ground uh, in how and under what conditions uh, financial conversations are had uh, but uh, feel free, of course, to continue to send us your voice notes. You might want to comment on uh, this uh, Quentin uh, de Kock matter, as I said. Uh, we have to make sure uh, that uh, we're able to uh, uh, place some critical qualifications on uh, under what conditions that type of thing happens. Because as one of our callers indicated, we've got to set a precedent. Uh, and one of the precedents that you don't want to set is one where people have the right to do things that go against the kind of value system we're trying to create in Cricket South Africa. Coming as it does from the racist history in the apartheid period and even post-apartheid of Cricket South Africa. Let me know what your thoughts are on that. Love to hear your perspectives and uh, you can uh, share with us on our studio line 089-110-3377. Skona Nagla WhatsApp line out on 079-191-4270. It is indeed, and uh, 17 minutes it is after 8 p.m. Uh, Dr. Sizwem Bofu-Walsh is our thought leader on this Thursday. Uh, he is a postdoctoral fellow out at WISER, uh, the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research, and also the author of the new Apartheid. Apartheid did not die. It was privatized. And he joins me now on the line. Uh, Dr. Bo- uh, Bofu-Walsh, good evening to you and welcome. Hey, Ayabonga, how are you doing, brother? I'm well, thanks, my man. How are you? Really well. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. I want us maybe to just talk briefly about, uh, before we get into the content of this uh, 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 piece of work that you've put together here. You you had an earlier book uh, that uh, you you put out, uh, which also, I guess, uh, was accompanied by uh, a musical contribution as well. Talk to me about that choice. I mean, the choice of uh, a literary contribution accompanied uh, with uh, some music as well. And, uh, of course, a lot of the work that you do in uh, multiple mediums uh, in line with uh, uh, all of the things that you hold dear. Why is that important to you? Thanks. Yeah, I think for the generation before us, um, the frontiers of creative expression were very much limited by the political and economic situation um, and the great oppression of apartheid. Mm. Um, And so rising to become an author or or an academic was was very difficult. And I think one of the beautiful things, although I spend a lot of time criticizing our current situation, about where we are is we can start to explore new frontiers of expression, new combinations of expression. And I've always found... Uh, the combination of music and writing to be a fascinating way of persuading people towards a message. You know, mm. often when you write, people are so defensive and uh, they want to, uh, you know, who's this person trying to teach me something is the kind of uh, predisposition. But music 
has a way of uh, approaching the heart in a different way. And I think that's something you can't do with writing. So combining those two things, I think, is an interesting way to get mm, a message across. Mm, mm. You know, it, it's interesting, your new book, uh, uh, The New Apartheid, starts in the chapter on space with something that we've been grappling with on this show, uh, which is this uh, sort of resurgence of a new form of federalism. Uh, mm. And of course, that uh, its outer margin is, you know, an explicit commitment to secession, in particular of the Western Cape. Um, and, and I'm quite interested, I guess, in, in the context of what you've written in your book, how you engage some of that and, and how that has received an electoral platform. Uh, I guess people don't go into elections unless you were really one of these smaller marginal parties if you don't think what you're saying has a base that's listening to it and that is moved by it. Well, that's such a, a fascinating uh, question, Ayabong, and, and I'm glad that you, you honed in on that part of the book. I think we need to appreciate that there is a big project and a, and a worrying project underway to break away on the part of white South Africans from, from South Africa, but mm. not to do so in a way that is obvious, but rather in a way that we won't even notice it until it has fully happened. So when you look at organizations like AfriForum, you look at the Cape Independence Party, you look at various other attempts to insulate uh, white privilege from the state, I think we're starting to see a project unfolding, and it's not secret. You know, you can actually hear people talking about this project, uh, a project of a new form of segregation mm. where increasingly uh, organizations that... Uh, champion the interests of white privilege uh, are trying to detach themselves from the democratic project. And that, I think, is something we really need to pay very close attention mm. to. And a lot of it is happening in the private sphere in the way that people gate themselves off from uh, the, the democratic state. Mm. Mm. Sizwa, I want you to pause there for me for a second. Uh, we need to take a quick spot break. Uh, I can see it nearing on us. But when we come back, I want us to talk about how, I guess, this seemingly is transcending uh, uh, racial lines. I mean, I was speaking to the Cape Colored Congress yesterday. Uh, and if mm. I read the manifesto of some of the uh, you know, other organizations who want federalism in some shape or form, it does seem that it's something uh, that uh, transcends the uh, racial or ethno-national lines. And uh, we'll mm. continue with that after this. There's no time like right now to kickstart your next chapter. You deserve quality education that will help you succeed. And studying full-time or while you work is just one application away. With contact learning or distance learning offerings, let us help you unlock your endless potential. Feel empowered, get equipped and employed with an undergraduate or postgraduate qualification that works for you. Applications are now open. Visit stadio.ac.za to apply today. Stadio is a registered higher education provider. It is indeed, and at 24 minutes it is after 8 p.m. We're in discussion with Dr. Siswem Bofu-Walsh, postdoc fellow at WISA and uh, the author of the new apartheid. Apartheid did not die, it was privatized. He's our thought leader on this Thursday. And uh, Siswem, before we went to the break, I was uh, talking about how it seems this fantasy of secession uh, or the fantasy of uh, sort of drawing up more borders, balkanizing the country. And, uh, you know, one, uh, I guess, uh, one uh, of my guests uh, this week was saying, uh, you know, uh, we, we raise X amount of money and uh, we get very little of it in return, uh, which in, in a way was, a, I guess, a direct attack on the progressivity of our division of revenue and uh, the suggestion that 
actually, uh, we kind of need to be creating barriers for the free movement of people, even within South Africa. What do you make of that in the context, context of what you say about space in your first chapter? But more importantly, I guess, about uh, the unresolved issues of Bantustan. Well, the book is really an attempt to suggest that we have not even begun to scratch the surface of apartheid in our current society. We are often uh, assumed to have defeated apartheid in 1994, Mm. but I think the last three decades of experience have shown that the legacy of of oppression reaches right into the present and, and will have a future. And I think this is one area in which that message is clearly evident. I think the way we uh, organize space, you know, the way people travel, who lives where, who lives in townships, still who doesn't, uh, who is able to live in uh, communities which are cut off from the state, who isn't, and where our public space is, I think really reveals in, in stark, stark terms, just how segregated our society continues to be. And so when we look at the way that uh, a new political imagination is building around further segregation, further separation, further uh, devolving of power down away from the central government, I think that's part of a broader pattern and a broader theme where we have new forms of social separation, which are frustrating our aim of overcoming the legacy of, of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Now, now, an interesting part of, I guess, that enduring legacy, especially mm. in what I call the former TBVC states, is mm. Uh, mm. not only what might be deemed agrarian dualism, so uh, the existence of highly mechanized, capital-intensive, commercial forms of agriculture on the margins of these TBVC states, uh, you know, under white uh, tilling and all manner of other things, and, of course, the subsistence production that happens in those homelands. But you also have, I guess, a duality of legal systems, which is something that uh, you give some attention to. um, And you argue that a big part of why that has been retained, um, I guess, to the adverse incorporation of many people who live under these dual systems of law has a lot to do with appeasing, uh, you know, traditional authorities as a big part of how our transition unfolded. Talk to us about that. Yeah, this is a really uh, important part of what I think we all have to give attention to. When the transition to 94 unfolded uh, and South Africa became a democracy from uh, our apartheid past, of course, uh, the apartheid laws, which were uh, evil and uh, widely criticized, came down. But a lot of things happened around that period that perhaps we haven't given enough uh, attention to. And I think one of the things that happened was the integration um, of the Bantustans, the areas of South Africa which were designated for specific cultural groups, according to apartheid's own imagination. And when those Bantustans became integrated or incorporated or brought into the new country, so many of the problems that had dogged and plagued the Bantustans became the democratic government and the democratic state's problems. Mm. And one of those problems is exactly 
the legal systems that, that governed Pakistan, but also many of the cultures, the, the power bases, the bureaucracies of the people who worked in government who had to become part of the state. And we are still, to this day, trying to arrange and coordinate ourselves around a group of ethnically de- defined provinces, um, which uh, often create more trouble than they bring uh, happiness. Mm, mm. You know, if, if we look at it in that way, and there's something very interesting that uh, you suggest at the tail end of uh, the section on law, um, mm. and you ask what is it that black South Africans won, but I guess the, mm. the converse of that question is what did the National Party lose or what did they win? And you argue that they won a market-oriented economy, they won an enlarged space for private enterprise, they won concessions on the devolution of power, and they won mm. amnesty for apartheid securocrats and, of course, very fat pensions for uh, apartheid bureaucrats. Um, And I'm quite interested in, I guess, how that foregrounds your chapter on wealth. Uh, Because Mm. in many ways, what you're suggesting is that, uh, you know, the private and public interests in the division of wealth in our society um, either have remained the same, thus, I guess, you know, the the, uh, new apartheid, or critical elements of those have remained the same. And maybe uh, it Mm. might be worth, I guess, explaining uh, how in the division of wealth and the, the underlying social relations around how that wealth is divided, uh, you feel apartheid has remained the same? Yeah, you know, it's so it's so interesting. I think we, we don't quite appreciate how much apartheid wealth and power is still, is still all around us. Mm. Uh, just, just as a, as a, a personal anecdote, um, the people themselves. You know, we walk amongst the grandchildren of like apartheid worst architects and so many people who were part of the apartheid army and and it's invisible but it's with us. And I think that's very much the the situation of wealth in our country. We have not fully grappled with the way that apartheid wealth didn't disappear. Uh, and what I say in the book is it may have changed form, but it didn't necessarily change hands. Mm, mm. Or when it did change hands, uh, it changed hands in, in such a way that it could maintain its ultimate form. And so where did apartheid wealth go and how do we trace it back to its origins to realize where power really lies in our economy? I think that's the question that's on all of our lips because mm. we, we look around and we are told that we are in a new era where opportunity is easily available. But really the centers of economic power, the people who have money, seem to trace back often to apartheid mm. pools of capital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot you cover in the book. Uh, you speak about how, for instance, technology, um, as many people often say, might be you know, what uh, makes more... Uh, apparent or deepens uh, the structural inequity of our society. But um, I guess I'm also very interested in how you grapple with this notion of surveillance capitalism uh, and how technology in many ways, you know, uh, um, allows for, I guess, um, you know, uh, a much higher level of surveillance, uh, which feeds on, I guess, the, the new apartheid that you speak about and you touch on, you know, how, uh, we think about punishment, how we think about policing, how we think about the monopoly of the state on violence. 
uh, still is very much within the paradigm of apartheid and even the boundaries we spoke about earlier, um, you know, that are defined ethno-nationally, still very much within the uh, ideational realm of apartheid. Now, I guess, you know, since the other question that I would have, having defined the new apartheid in this way, uh, we also do know that, I guess, apartheid in a sense was also apartheid because of the, you know, countervailing political agitation and the political project that aimed to undo it. I'm interested in your thoughts on, based on all of these constituent elements of what you call the new apartheid, what are some of the politics or the type of agitational movement building that's required to respond to this new apartheid? And better yet, what does the emancipatory project beyond this new apartheid look like? Mm. Well, to, to come on to the first section about technology, I think what one thing that's really interesting and that occurred to me while I was writing the book mm. is that the internet and mobile technology and mobile phones and the way that our lives have become so digital um, and we, we spend so much time with these devices and these networks, that process really coincided with our, our democratic moment. It, it's almost exactly in the early 90s when both processes start. So mm. one of the interesting things about our democratic project is that it it is an increasingly digital project and the digital part of it takes up an increasingly large space in all of our lives. And so I really started thinking through that and realizing that as surveillance or the ability of mm. powerful companies or governments to watch what you're doing when you're doing it uh, grows, that maps onto South Africa's own problems with segregation sure, and, and with sure. apartheid. And that's really what I try to look at in the book. For example, how many private security cameras are we watched by every single day? You know, and anytime you go into a building, a set of uh, shops, uh, a garage, uh, your, your, your workplace, you're being watched by private eyes. Um, and not necessarily public eyes as it were, was in, in apartheid. Mm. And that's something we need to, to really think about. Um, and then in terms of the political project, you know, I think, Ayabonga, we're still in the very early stages of conceptualizing that, and that's really what I hope to do with this book. Surely I, I won't get it right as, as one author, but I think we need to start building a wider frame to define where we are, um, go beyond just poverty, inequality, and unemployment, or uh, technical terms, and really start thinking, like the generation who, who fought formal apartheid, start thinking about building bigger frames um, to define our crisis, and then mm. we can think about how we undo that crisis. Yeah. But I don't even think we've done the, the, the work in defining it yet, and that's what I'm trying to do mm. with the new apartheid. I find it interesting, you you know, you draw on Keith Breckenridge's work. Um, mm. And it's, I mean, I, I remember reading Shoshana Zhoboff's uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Um, mm. And one of the things, of course, I mean, it's written in the context of the US, speaking about Google and all of that stuff. But one of the things yeah. that um, that you, you do in the book is to link this imperative of surveillance capitalism to a longstanding imperative of surveillance by the apartheid state. Um, mm. which, of course, is manifest in what Keith Breckenridge says was one of the most extravagant aims, which was to make sure that everybody uh, who was in the population had their fingerprints in the population register and uh, they were mm. able to surveil even the most intimate and private of relations between people. 
Mm. And of course, there, there were many firms who were at the cutting edge of key value chains that were critical to this. I mean, a lot of South Africans don't know about the struggles of Polaroid workers in the 70s in the US who, after finding out that that camera company had a contract with the apartheid government to take the pictures that were used in passbooks, uh, um, mm. decided to organize against it. So there's a lot of these uh, historic continuities that I find very, very interesting. Uh, and, mm. one of, and, and one of the other things, or, or, you know, Caesar, in that context is how then when we think about, you know, the contemporary relevance and also the historic and relational links. So in as much as things might have changed, a lot of them still remain the same. Um, yeah. It raises a political question. Do the forms of organizing and agitating against those uh, also subject, I guess, to the same dialectic of what changes and what might remain the same? It's a, it's a really important question, and it's one that I'm, I'm still grappling with. But I do have a few, a few thoughts, because mm. I think many people in South Africa at the moment are are trying to work work through what is the alternative? What is the alternative in the way that we think about and write about South Africa? Mm. But they're not just thinking and writing. What's the alternative in the way that we act? And sure. we, we try to shift this, this stagnation that we have uh, found ourselves in. And I think in some ways, what's required is similar to uh, earlier forms of, of agitation. And I think in other ways, it's different. So I think what's similar is that apartheid and what I call the new apartheid is ultimately a form of minority control. And it requires a very coordinated minority to take advantage and exploit a much larger majority. Mm. And so the, the strategic question then is, how do you mobilize a majority uh, to counteract the minority? Because if the majority is as organized as the minority, then there's only ever going to be one winner. Um, but one of the differences, I think, is that previously apartheid was a governmental project. It came from the state. It came from a central source. Now it's become a, a project that is largely housed in the private realm and in the private sphere, mm. and it's not in one place. So I think we have to be even wiser in this generation to spot the, the way that all these decentralized nodes of the problem actually trace back to a single problem. Mm, mm. Maybe then a last one uh, while we have you for, I guess, just about a minute or so. Um, I mean, there's been mm. some interesting reception of your book. Um, I think a lot of people who re reviewed it uh, have also given mm. uh, some very glowing reviews. Some are on the cover. Sure. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I'd be interested. Yeah, yeah she calls herself um, I mean, I'm also quite interested, I guess, in what you make of the recent yeah. uh, review by uh, William Shorkey and denial ready which uh, i mm. guess was much more critical but uh, that's in the world of literary work very very important as important as the glowing reviews what do you make of that mm. absolutely you know just on a personal level uh this is this is really a first for me i i've never felt so much public scrutiny and attention mm. on my work and what's been kind of confusing actually is the the polar reactions um People seem to either really love this work and, and think that it's a great work, or they absolutely hate it, and they think it, it isn't worth the paper it's written on. And as an author, I think you, you've kind of 
got to um, not take either extreme to heart. You know, I think yeah. uh, there is genuine and useful critique. Uh, I haven't actually read the recent one that's been published in Africa as a country yet. Mm. I believe it's 7,000 words. Um, but it's important, I think, to try and sift through uh, the... There's also a fair amount of just toxic trolling. Mm. Um, Sizwe, let's do this. Wait, wait, wait. Let's do this. Yeah. I can see a spot break that's going to chuck us out here. And I want you to complete your response properly. Hold the line and we'll come back after this brief break. It is indeed. And uh, we speak to uh, uh, Dr. Sizwempofu Walsh this evening, the author of the new apartheid. Apartheid did not die. It was privatized. And uh, Sizwe, uh, we're just talking, I guess, about, uh, as you say, the polar ends of the reviews of this work. Um, And of course, uh, you're also suggesting that, I guess, Somewhere in the middle of that, there's also uh, the trolls and, uh, yeah, do continue. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think in this age uh, in which we're living, it's, uh, it's, it's harder, but all the more important to try and discern where the fruitful critique is and criticism is and mm. then try and engage that. So that's the process that I'm, I'm in at the moment. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think that ultimately, you know, take myself out of it and even the other authors who've written about the book positively and negatively somewhere beyond the noise there's a really interesting debate that I think is useful which is how do we define this crisis that we're in in South Africa is the way that I define it useful does it move us forward is it not and I think that's a really useful debate that that I, I would like to contribute to and bring forward um, but I also want to do so uh, while uh, not, um, mm. you know, taking the noise too much into account. So that's really where I am with it. And, and I really welcome the debate. Uh, it's incredible to me how much uh, energy has been invested in writing on this book um, uh, for positive and, uh, you know, for, from a critical perspective. And I think that goes to show that uh, we are at a moment where we are now trying to rethink where we are as a country. Yeah. Sizwe, we're going to have to leave it there, my brother. A uh, real pleasure catching up with you and thank you very much for your time. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. Dr. Sizwe Mbofu Walsh uh, joining us there, the uh, author of The New Apartheid. Apartheid did not die. It was privatized. He's also a postdoc fellow out at WISER, uh, the Witz Institute for uh, Social and Economic Research. 14 minutes it is uh, before 9 p.m. We're going to take a brief break now and uh, when uh, we come back, Uh, We go straight into our culture talk segment.